Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in football. On today's pod, we have transfers Chelsea, Spurs, Manchester United, Manchester City, as well as the big debating point about handball. I mean, McGarry, and joining me as always is the transfer guru, Duncan Castles, the man that everyone listens to when he talks. Duncan, we're going to start with news from Chelsea. We are, of course, six days away from the close of the transfer window, and Chelsea's uh, very entertaining, uh, though probably disappointing for Frank Lampard, draw with. West Bromwich Albion, in which they lost three goals in 13 minutes, uh, down to two individual errors in particular in the defence, has meant they have stepped up their bid to sign Declan Rice from West Ham. As we've reported consistently on the Transfer Window podcast, Rice is seen by Lampard as a centre-back, indeed a dominant centre-back in a back three uh, with the recruitment of Thiago Silva uh, that would of course be even more of an augmentation to Chelsea's back line and of course there has to be players moving out and that will have consequences as well. It's our information that uh, Anthony Rudiger who has been the main casualty of the early season in terms of losing his place has been offered to West Ham United as part of the deal which would bring Rice to Stamford Bridge. Rudiger, the German international, uh, is available on loan. Chelsea are okay about selling him uh, on a permanent deal. However, Rudiger himself is thought to be um, a little bit indecisive with regards to moving across London on a permanent deal and would prefer instead to take a year to play football and prove himself. It's clear he's not in Lampard's plans, at least in the short term. Interestingly, Duncan, there's another player involved in this particular proposal to West Ham, and that is the England international midfielder, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who is in a similar position to Rudiger in that he's not in Lampard's starting eleven, and would prefer to be playing football in, of course, a 12-month period which will culminate in Euro 2020, played in Euro 2021, as it were, and uh, therefore prefer to try and prove himself uh, with game time elsewhere if he's going to make Gareth Southgate's squad. Rudiger in a similar position with regards to the Germany squad. It would seem, Duncan, that Chelsea are trying to complete what has been a very busy summer window for them, the busiest they've had in five years uh, of um, transfer negotiations with regards to incoming players. And indeed, the spend itself has already accelerated beyond £220 million. Do you think that Loftus-Cheek and Rudiger would be uh, attractive to West Ham United, um, given that in Rice, they have probably their best player currently, um, even though 
it is widely regarded in football that the Hammers need to bring in some money. I think in Antonio Rudiger, they get a, a player who um, has quite high status in, in European football, Germany international. He's done well for um, Chelsea in the Premier League. And, and it's actually, if you don't know the background, um, the training ground issues we, we talked about last week um, and the conflict with, between Rudiger, Lampard and um, his teammates, underperforming teammates and Andreas Christensen and, and Kepa Arizabalaga, um, you'd be surprised that Chelsea are prepared to let Rudiger go. But I think this is, they have to offer something to West Ham, they want to try and get the 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 transfer fee, the cash element of the transfer fee down because West Ham want a you know a huge sum for Declan Rice, um, over seventy million pounds is the is the figure that that's being floated, um, and what the first rounds of of the the Premier League have demonstrated is that Lampard desperately needs Rice in there. Uh, to not just strengthen the defence, but allow them to play from the back in the way he has uh, been trying to get them to play from the back. We know that West Ham United are a selling club. Um, Down the years, historically, when the big offers come in for the players, they let those players go. Uh, Declan Rice wants to go back to Chelsea, the, the club where he was as an academy player. He has the opportunity of switching a team that's not in a great state of repair where there's a lot of discontent between the dressing room and the ownership for one that has had that big spend already on them and is aiming and um, Roman Abramovich has sanctioned that big spend because he wants them to compete for the title. Uh, He'd be moving to a team where Frank Lampard wants him as targeted them, makes him central to uh, their setup So, and obviously would be securing a a substantial um, pay rise, putting himself in a good position to play for England in the Euros, as you say. It all works from that perspective from Chelsea and from Declan Rice's view. Um, West Ham United, uh, Sullivan and Gold can probably sell this better to the fans if they're bringing in a Germany international in part exchange and bringing in Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who has a lot of expectation around him, but has never really um, nailed down that place in Chelsea's first team that that Chelsea's academy uh, and Roman Abramovich had hoped would happen. And, and obviously, given the degree of spend we've seen at Chelsea this summer, in areas of the field that Ruben Loftus-Cheek plays, it's become harder for him to, to get that place. So pra- from a pragmatic perspective, it works for Chelsea. Um, we'll see if it works for West Ham and, and allows them to, to do that deal. I think it's interesting, Duncan, that um, Frank Lampard was heartily praised um, for blooding youth and bringing players from the academy at Chelsea into the first team, something which, of course, has been very much a glass ceiling situation for many a young player at Stamford Bridge in the last few years. And, of course, we shouldn't um, dismiss the influence of Jody Morris, who, of course, was under-18s manager for five years and enjoyed great success with those academy players. 
it seems now though that the pressure is on to not just compete with the top clubs, but to challenge them for those titles, including, of course, the Premier League, um, as well as Champions League and other trophies, that the spending has gone up, the influx of foreign players has gone up, and he still keeps faith, and we should give him credit for that, with um, a lot of the younger players that he's brought in. But Loftus-Cheek is one of those who seems to be around for a long time, um, has shown great promise, has shown um, great potential, but never quite made the grade. So uh, from my point of view, I would have thought that this was a good uh, way for Loftus-Cheek to, if you like, prove once and for all that he is going to be a successful Premier League player to go to West Ham United uh, and effectively play football on a week-in, week-out basis so that he can um, show what he's got and whether or not he's good enough for Chelsea to come back. Um, one of the things uh, that we should also consider as well is that breaking news today is that West Ham are in talks with Slavia Prague about their right-back Vladimir Kufal, um, who they look upon as a replacement for uh, players who have left the club, most notably Pablo Zabaleta. Um, they will need money, clearly, to sign Kufal, who's valued at around 10 to 12 million euros. Uh, now, that is a deal which isn't far from completion as yet, but Kufal is a former teammate of Thomas Suchek, who, of course, signed initially on loan for West Ham in January, a transfer that was made permanent in June. We know, as you said, Duncan, that West Ham are a selling club and they need to generate money in order to regenerate their squad. Rice is by far their most valuable player, but I do think, and I know that having spoken to people at Chelsea, that the valuation of 70 million is way beyond what Chelsea expect to pay. Are West Ham able to hold out for that kind of fee, or do you think that they will sell for a more realistic price? What I would say with, with Loftus Cheek is. So I remember having a conversation um, with someone at Chelsea at the start of last season when Loftus-Cheek was coming back from his Achilles tendon injury. And remember, you have two of that, that kind of cadre of young England internationals at Chelsea who suffered Achilles problems at the same time, the other one being Callum Hudson-Odoi who was at that time the primary target for Bayern Munich and Chelsea had gone out of their way to increase his contract and re retain him at the club, which they managed to achieve, I think, post the injury. Um, both of those players have struggled post Achilles tendon, which is not surprising because Achilles tendon is seen as being one of the, the most difficult injuries in football to um, fix properly and get back to the same performance levels you had previous to suffering it. But that conversation I had a year ago was that the, the 1920 season would be pivotal for Loftus-Cheek in demonstrating whether he was good enough for Chelsea or whether he was going to have to drop down a tier of the Premier League to make his career. And you have to say that the evidence of the season is 
he is headed for that drop down because he he made just seven Premier League appearances for Chelsea last season. He did that in an environment where you had Jody Morris and um, Frank Lampard there promoting as many academy players as possible, giving them runs in the team. Yeah, it was a, about as as good a situation as he could get to demonstrate he was good enough for Chelsea. Didn't manage to do it. Now they're overloaded with bodies. Now they have to make sales or loan players out. It's the, the sensible, that you can see the pathway where this works, that West Ham accept Loftus-Cheek, build it up into being a good signing for them. Say that they reluctantly had to let Declan Rice go because he pushed for the move and 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 the money was was good. Um, I think this season, I mean, you you talked about the spending and the shift towards buying ready-made or close to ready-made overseas players. I think this season is going to be a very tough one for Frank Lampard in that the perception is you've had a huge spend on, on the squad and it probably end up being a bigger spend than anyone else in the Premier League. We'll see what happens with Manchester United, Manchester City in this last week. Um, the team did well last season. So now it is time to compete. Now it is time to be up at the top level. It's not easy to integrate all of those players at the same time. Um, it's you're, you're looking at an adaptation period for all the players coming from overseas. Do they fit into your tactical scheme? We've talked in this podcast since before January that these buys were being driven by Marina Granovskaya rather than Frank Lampard. He was prior, prioritizing other areas of the team, one of them being central defense, which he still doesn't have that solution for now having played several games in this season. So whatever happens, even if he gets Declan Rice, he didn't have the preseason, didn't have the chance to, to build the team properly. He's going to have to be fixing things with a compressed fixture list. It's not an ideal scenario for any manager. Compare it to Liverpool. We look at the way they've started the season. That very impressive win over Arsenal last night. They look like the team we saw from Liverpool in the first half of last season, because essentially they are the team we saw from Liverpool in the first half of last season with a couple of strategic additions that Jurgen Klopp wanted, which are one of the best players in Europe that they've taken from Bayern. And, you know, arguably one of the one of the most effective players in the Premier League last season, Diogo Jota, that they've taken from Wolves and can fit straight into their system and, Again, we saw what he did against Arsenal, scoring on his Premier League debut for Liverpool. Very good goal. Um, and, OK, early days, but he looks a very natural fit to that Liverpool system, which isn't a surprise because Liverpool are very careful about buying players, trying to buy players who will fit the system. And seven times out of ten, they've been getting that right over um, the, the period of Klopp's management of the club certainly nothing sloppy about Liverpool last night Duncan uh, despite <laughs> the uh, views of a Manchester United legendary captain uh, maybe we'll come on to that later in the podcast I think Andy, um, Rob- I think Andy Robertson was quite sloppy regardless of well, your, the, um, the very sensitive Jurgen Klopp very sensitive indeed after the match 
Yeah, I think Keane will be kicking himself for not actually having that at his disposal. It's like that situation that we've all found ourselves in. We said, oh, I wish I'd said that. We shall switch our attentions from Chelsea to North London and Josie Mourinho and the uh, continuing um, story of Miran Skriniar, uh, a bid had and has been made and rejected for the uh, central defender. It's a position, Duncan, that you believe Mourinho has prioritised and feels that he needs uh, to certainly strengthen. Now, we know that the interest is concrete and we know that a bid has been made. But what can you tell us with regards to the realistic chances of this transfer coming to a successful conclusion from Tottenham's point of view? Uh, point of view? Tottenham could have this player if they want this player. Um, Milan Skriniar is for sale. Antonio Conte has moved him off his automatic starter list at Inter. Conte is trying to sign N'Golo Kante. In fact, as we said in the podcast on Friday, he has told the board that if they bring him Kante from Chelsea, he will win them the Serie A title this season. That's his promise to them. Skriniar, they know they can get cash for. They have that interest from Tottenham. The valuation they've placed on him is 60 million euros. Um, People I talk to who know Inter well say that they would accept 50 million euros for that deal. So if Daniel Levy sanctions a bid of 50 million euros, then they should get Skriniar from Inter as set up for the deal to happen. The offer they made last week was 30 million euros, which Inter considered to be ridiculous impossible to sell at that price. I'm told they were not interested in players that Tottenham were offering in part exchange and essentially said, show us the money, show us the 50 million, or they were asking for 60, but show us the proper transfer fee bid for the player and you will get him. As you say, Jose Mourinho had asked for a top centre-back. He can put straight into his team to improve the defence and a alternative to Harry Kane. They, you know, he will point out that they are the only team um, in the Premier League who are going into another season with just one experienced uh, quality centre-forward, that that is not a practical way to approach a season. They lost Harry Kane midway through that last season and that cost them Champions League qualification doesn't want to be in a similar situation again. So while, and he's on record as saying this, while he's happy um, to have Gareth Bale and Sergio Regulon in his squad, that he likes both of those players, that was not the optimal solution from his perspective. He would rather have had the money, and um, in, in Bale's case, the wages are, are extremely high, invested in other areas of the team. And he is now very, very keen to see those transactions happen elsewhere in the squad. Um, We asked the question last week whether Daniel Levy will actually go the extra mile and get those players in. I think that question is still being asked um, by Jose Mourinho. Certainly, um, the pictures we saw of uh, 
Tottenham's head of recruitment, Steve Hitchin, in Milan in conversation with um, Skriniar's representative were unusual. I might be forgetting it, but I can't recall a similar case where um, Tottenham were seen, openly seen to be negotiating uh, with a player in such a high-profile transfer situation. I, you know, and, and a cynic might say that um, if you want to be seen to be doing a deal, if you want maximum media exposure over the idea that you're making a bid for a player, then you get yourself photographed in a, a situation like that. Maybe it was coincidental. Um, but from Mourinho's perspective, whether there are photographs taken of Steve Hitchin in Milan, um, whether there are bids being made is irrelevant. What's important is whether that bid is successfully concluded. Um, Inter are waiting to see if Tottenham will improve. Uh, they had promised to loan one of their defenders uh, to Genoa, and I, I'm told they've, they've put a stop on that deal because they believe there's still a possibility of, of selling Skriniar. So that may be a positive sign for Tottenham supporters. Um, or it could be that what's happened here is that other clubs have been alerted to the availability of Skriniar at, at 50 million euros and um, and there's a bid coming from elsewhere. It's a very odd situation. Um, and I know that we've referenced this um, recently as well, Duncan, where a coach as experienced as Jose Mourinho um, stipulates very precisely the positions that he needs to strengthen. And instead, um, uh, and we use this phrase um, with some amount of uh, levity, uh, and that is gifted um, a left back and a left winger instead of receiving a centre back and centre forward. Um, you have to wonder uh, what kind of game is being played here uh, in terms of the internal politics at Tottenham. Because Mourinho started the summer as saying that he didn't expect to have a huge budget, if any budget at all. You certainly reported that it was sell to buy for Tottenham Hotspur or loans at lower uh, valuations and cost. Now we've seen them take on one of the highest paid players in the world, Gareth Bale, uh, at a time when they have, you have to say, um, several players who can play wide attacking midfield and do so very well, as well as uh, five senior uh, left backs as well. Now, if you can, if you're serious, going to challenge in the Premier League, and I mean for top four, never mind the title, as well as in other competitions. And we saw Mourinho um, just in the last twenty four hours uh, effectively say he cannot um, promise that he'll uh, compete in the EFL Cup because he has a Europa League playoff situation. Uh, in uh, on Thursday evening, um, and therefore the EFL Cup does not take priority in any way, shape, or form. So with Skriniar, it seems to me like that's kind of that plus 
a backup to Kane has to be resolved before next Monday when the transfer window closes, or we're going to see a very unhappy Jose complaining about the eggs he doesn't get to buy at Waitrose um, in the next two to three months. Yeah, I'm not sure he'll complain immediately. I, I, my understanding is he's trying to avoid that um, conflict in press conferences that has caused him problems at previous clubs, um, obviously at Manchester United, obviously at Chelsea. Um, but you, know, you don't have to be a genius to see that when your manager asks for a centre-back and a backup to Harry Kane, which I think most people, if you do an analysis of the Tottenham squad, would say, yeah, that's a sensible thing to do. And what you provide them with is a sixth second line forward um, when they're already, the quality of their second line forwards is very good. And a fifth left back, that that's not going to go down well with the manager. And, and you're right to ask the question, um, if you have faith in your manager, who's someone they only appointed um, midway through last season, and he says, These are, this is the restructuring, we need to rebalance the squad, and you're telling me the budget's limited, well, I'd like these players, um, but I definitely want them in these positions. And you go and sign in positions where you're already stocked. <laughs> that, that either means you don't have faith in your manager or you think you have a, a better way of structuring the squad um, than the, the, the guy you brought in to run that squad. And you don't have to be a great psychologist to work out that if you don't provide him with the tools he expects to do the job, there's probably going to be conflict down the line. So in the case of Daniel Levy um, has a, let's just say, um, past and certainly a history of uh, recruiting players that he thinks are good value for the club as well as potentially uh, good value for sell-on as well rather than being the ones that the manager or indeed the team actually needs. It's and uh, it's conflict between player trading model and a mm -hmm. structure of squad model. What do you prioritize? Um, the financial structure of deals that that make sense to the balance book down the line, in your view, because you can bring a player in and make a profit on that deal. And Regulon is is one where the the cost is limited in the sense that Madrid intend to take him back, and you'll be paid a premium for holding him for two seasons, so you get a high-quality player at a relatively cheap cost? Or are you prioritising actual success in the field, in which case you put your resources into the areas of the team that your most experienced football professional says are required to be strengthened to give you the best chance of winning um, next season? And, you know, the demonstrations there, everyone saw what happened last season after Harry Kane got injured. And, and it's, you know, it's not a complex process to say if you've got one very good centre forward who the team is built around, um, who is injury prone, you're going to have problems, likely problems, if he, he gets hit by another injury. Well, this is my point, Duncan. I think there's been a shift um, generally in um, recent years whereby, especially in the elite clubs, that they will decide 
without necessarily the full mandate or permission of the head coach or manager to buy players or recruit players to the squad. And they'll do so on the basis that they feel there is a value in that player, which goes beyond possibly the uh, lifespan of the coach being there. And that seems to be part of the trend in football in terms of recruitment. And is one certainly something which I've heard so many times from managers um, and coaches in terms of uh, the frustration that they feel with regards to their uh, authority of who's coming in and who's going out. That in fact, decisions are made above their head and they're made not basically on the good of what is for that coming season and we're only two games in, three games in for some clubs, actually competing in a competent and proper way. And I think that's something that Mourinho is up against at Tottenham. And it seems to be the case, given the recruitment that they've made so far, and certainly uh, what they've not done, which is more significant, which is satisfy the manager's demands in terms of centre-back and centre-forward. And here we are six days before the window closes, and we know that Spurs are infamous for doing deals on the last day, um, or indeed not doing deals on the last day um, as well, uh, deals that fall down because they simply can't get them over the line in the time scale that they've allowed themselves. So, so yeah, I think um, there could be um, certainly uh, some conflict uh, and what goes on, obviously if results go well, then uh, Jose and Daniel Levy will be on great terms and they will be fine. But if it doesn't go that way, then I think we know exactly which way it'll go. Moving on to one of uh, Jose Mourinho's former clubs, there also is... Um, the potential for more movement at Old Trafford. But Duncan, it's an interesting take on Tellez now with regards to Porto's position because even though the player has kind of indicated that he would like to leave, he has a decision to make based on his length of contract and also um, what Porto are saying with regards to their prospects for this season yeah Porto are insisting that the price has to be 20 million euros for Alex Tellez and Manchester United are now briefing that they're in talks with um, with Porto over the transfer so they made it clear now um, in off record briefings that Alex, Alex Tellez is a strong option for them in that left back position but their brief is that 20 million euros is too high in a COVID-affected market. We're not going to pay that amount of money. Um, you'd be forgiven for saying you've heard this before. Um, that's been the story for Jaden Sancho and the 120 million euro valuation that Borussia Dortmund placed on the player. Um, it's also, although COVID wasn't in the picture, it was the story with Bruno Fernandes that uh, Sporting were overpricing him. In, those, in that case... Manchester United end up, ended up paying what uh, Sporting were asking for Bruno Fernandes, just as they ended up paying Crystal Palace what they were asking for Arnold Wan-Bissaka. 
and in Leicester City, what they were asking for Harry Maguire. They don't have a good track record of um, of actually achieving lower fees when they start talking about the, the prices being asked for players as being too high. Porto's uh, position uh, in Portugal is we will not sell for less than 20 million euros. Um, we, we want performance-related bonuses on top of that 20 million guaranteed. And it needs to be done this week. We can't afford to let it drag on too long because if Tellez goes, we need a replacement in. And doing that in the last couple of days of the window is going to be an expensive and risky exercise. He is extremely important to them on the football pitch. Um, some people argue he's the best player, most effective player in their team. He scores goals, creates goals, he takes their penalties. Um, they want to win the Portuguese title again. They want to secure Champions League qualification again. They know that it will cost them to retain Teles because if they don't sell him this window, they essentially lose him for nothing as a free agent at the end of the season. But their, their stance is we will not let him go for 10, 15 million euros and sacrifice um, our title chances by doing so. Whether they stick to that or not, we'll see. But I think you have to factor in here that they have a very good chance of winning the Portuguese title again because Benfica have just handicapped themselves by selling their captain and a player that they'd intended to, to build their team around for the next five, um, possibly even 10 years, Ruben Gias to, to Manchester City at discounted price. So the possibility of winning the title has increased and um, the criticism that they feel they could come under if they are seen to sell Alex Tellis for too low a price from their supporters is something that is, I think, a genuine factor in their, their negotiations over this deal. And remember, they've already raised a significant amount of cash in this market from selling players to Wolves. Silva, their forward, the young forwards, sold for a what was a record transfer fee for Wolves of 40 million euros, um, as well as selling um, their midfielder, Virginia, to Wolves. So they're, they're in a stronger financial position than they were two months ago. And you've got two clubs briefing, basically. One saying, we want the player, but we're not going to pay the price that Porto are asking for them. And the other saying, we're prepared to let them go, but you've got to meet our asking price. We don't think 20 million euros is unrealistic for a player of his quality. Um, we will see how it breaks down. I told you what Manchester United's history is in these situations. They, they have tended to fold in the past. Let's see if they fold again and pay the money. We saw last weekend, Duncan, um, Brighton's uh, exciting young right wing back, uh, Tarek Lamptey, uh, decimate United in terms of both their uh, left side of midfield and defence. Uh, winning a penalty, obviously, but also on various uh, different incursions, uh, making it very difficult for United to defend. And in that sense as well, even Solskjaer admitted afterwards that United came out of that game with three points, very lucky. They were, they were not the better team, and a draw, in his words, would have been a much... Uh, more fair result. Is Alex Tellers the answer in terms of, because we know that Luke Shaw 
Um, despite his starring role in Manchester's kebab shops, uh, is not necessarily uh, the starring role at Old Trafford. I don't think he's the answer. I think he's he, he's definitely an improvement over Luke Shaw. Um, the, you know, the fact that Luke Shaw is still starting left back for Manchester United tells you quite a lot about the bad decisions that they made under Ed Woodward um, during his period in, in charge. And, and Alex uh, Luke Shaw was retained at the club because of Ed Woodward because he didn't want to um, let him leave for a loss. So they gave him a new contract. Uh, you know, a, a very lucrative new contract, and he has been the favoured individual to play in that squad when it's it, his defensive weaknesses are obvious. Um, I've seen Manchester United fans doing the comparison on Alex Telles's uh, assist record to Luke Shaw, and that doesn't look great for Shaw either. So yeah, it will be an upgrade. Um, it won't change fundamentally what happened in that Brighton game, what happened in the Crystal Palace game, because that is down in significant part to the management. They have a substandard manager in charge. They have a a training regime which produces a lot of muscular injuries. We see Solskjaer again complaining that his players aren't fit and are not at the, the, the level he requires of of them. And fine, this is a COVID-affected pre-season. It's been harder to prepare your teams. They're not going to be at optimal level going into the season, but Manchester United's preparations, uh, the time available to them to prepare, hasn't been that different from other Premier League clubs. Yes, they played Europa League um, deep into uh, the season, but you know, as, as we discussed in the earlier podcast, the... The solution, talking, I, talking to a, you know, an expert um, football trainer was to just keep the players ticking over, keep them at the levels of fitness they, they, they were at at the end of the last season rather than to try and push them through uh, an accelerated pre-season to get them uh, in the kind of state you would like them to have going, entering a, a normal season. Solskjaer himself is saying that they're substandard relative to the other clubs. A mistake has been made there. And, um, you know, we all know it's not the only mistake that Solskjaer makes in terms of selection, in terms of strategies, in terms of ways of breaking down teams um, who uh, don't play in the way he wants them to play, don't fit that, that fast counter-attacking style that's been most effective for Manchester United. I think they've got a big um, decision to make over what they do with Jaden Sancho. Um, my understanding on the Usman Dembele situation is that they're due to speak to Barcelona again today. Um, so uh, Barcelona at least are expecting uh, another proposal or discussion from Manchester United who have previously asked whether they can take the player on loan um, who have talked to Dembele's representative and being quoted a what was described as a Mino Raiola level of commission um, to do a deal. Barcelona want to sell. They, they value the player at 100 million euros. Barcelona are one of those clubs who are have a very difficult end of the window coming up because they have to raise cash and they want to bring players in from other teams such as Sergio Dest from Ajax, Memphis Depay, 
from Leon. There's a lot of uh, moving parts in this transfer market and there is an opportunity for United if they can't get Sancho to get Dembele from uh, from Barcelona. Um, Ian, what's your feeling on, on where, how this will pan out? Um, you know, you've, you've told us in great detail about Manchester United's stance and their expectation that, that Dortmund would fold at the end of the window. Um, do you think that's going to happen? What I'd say, Duncan, is in my experience of dealing with football transfers over the last 20 years or so, I find it very unusual that Manchester United have not gone down um, any very detailed path with a Sancho alternative, which does coincide and also complement the information that I have consistently uh, given the Transfer Window podcast with regards to United believing that the Sancho deal will be done. However, and we know football is a strange um, business, never mind a strange game sometimes. Um, I was speaking to a football financier uh, this morning who told me that Barcelona absolutely need to raise 60 million euros uh, from player sales or indeed from player wage um, indemnity uh, of their um, salary bill before the end of the window, which again is closing in on us. And in doing so, uh, they will be able to make some of the signings that you have detailed in this and possibly Depay as well. So there's going to be a lot of activity over the next few days, that's for sure. Um, the brinksmanship with regards to Sancho remains pretty much the same as we've described. Um, Dortmund would prefer a more uh, profitable and uh, quick uh, um, payment plan than they are currently being offered by, by Manchester United. Um, the current offer is 110 million euros in total with 90 million euros guaranteed and 20 in add-ons. Dortmund are asking 120 million euros uh, and 100 million euros in guaranteed payments. Neither side have moved from that or budged from that in the last six weeks. So that offer remains on the table and is part of um, this, you know, Hooplink's first negotiation stance that exists between the two clubs. I find it slightly strange that Borussia Dortmund um, are basing their economics currently on a notion that the COVID recession, which is due to kick in, will somehow um, be uh, less impactful 12 months from now because they have a very, very good offer for a player that they recruited at a very low price from Manchester City at this moment in time compared to what they're being offered by Manchester United now. Uh, of course, their um, consideration is that 
is it better for him to stay with us and play and therefore help us to achieve uh, competitive um, uh, in terms of the Champions League and also in the Bundesliga? Or would it be better for us to sell him and recruit? But with so little time left in the window, you do have to ask, well, is that going to be a realistic prospect for them? Um, they've already signed Jude Bellingham, as we know, who has made uh, a reasonable and um, certainly uh, a decent impression in his first four weeks uh, at the Bundesliga club. So, albeit he's not uh, for like replacement, obviously for Sancho, I think there is an element of well, we could probably live without Sancho. Um, but this hardline stance, which Dortmund have maintained throughout uh, United's pursuit of the England international, is something which uh, they're going to have to either cave and lose some face, or they simply say, no, unless you achieve the fee that we want, then we will just hold out because he has three years left in his contract and therefore we don't need to sell and we don't want to sell. Unfortunately for them, the player does want to leave and does want to go to Manchester United, as we have repeatedly reported on the Transfer Window podcast. So I think that situation is going to get interesting over the next few days. Um, Sancho himself uh, certainly believes that he can get out of Dortmund and it may well take a transfer request formally to get Dortmund to enter negotiations into um, seeing what compromise can be worked out with Manchester United. So it's a, it's a saga, but we're used to sagas, Duncan, um, with lots of different transfers um, when players are identified way in advance, but uh, the selling club is not particularly keen to sell. Um, with regards to um, Tellez, uh, I think that everything you've said is correct and also that uh, Manchester United, I think, need to and will accelerate their um, recruitment policy. Uh, they have not performed well in the first two matches of the Premier League campaign, having lost one and been very fortunate to beat Brighton last weekend. Uh, and therefore, whether it's Usman Dembele at Barcelona or Jason Sancho at Borussia Dortmund, I think Solskjaer will be putting a huge amount of pressure on Edward Wood and the board with regards to doing one or the other because he needs to have that game-breaker player in his squad because uh, currently they are very predictable with regards to the, the way that they set out, set up and can be uh, nullified by opposition teams. Speaking of being nullified, Duncan, Pep Guardiola has once again broken Manchester City's transfer record, as you mentioned earlier in the pod, with the recruitment of uh, Ruben Dias. Uh, £65 million, pounds, or around €72 million. Euros. A lot of money for a central defender, but in Pep's kind of general uh, opening of his wallet, that's not really such a big spend uh, in terms of 400 million euros plus on defenders since he arrived at the club. And yet, and seriously, uh, for Manchester City fans, you may not like to hear this, and yet 
still the defense isn't correct. It still doesn't sit right. What is going on and what is going wrong, Duncan? Not not quite record transfer fee. Manchester City's transfers are, are kind of complicated with exactly what they, they spent in a Euro level for Kevin De Bruyne and exactly how much they paid for Bernardo Silva, which was a total of 75 million euros when you include the, the easily triggered um, performance-related variables in that deal. Uh, the price for um, Ruben Gias, uh get got close to that. So you've got 68 million um, guaranteed and 3.6 million of um, performance-related variables in that deal. Some of it waylaid by sending Nicola Otamendi, a player that City wanted out to Benfica. So partly this is to so that Benfica can show a higher number to their supporters. Um, but yeah, it takes the the total spend on um, defenders and goalkeepers, um, top line defenders and goalkeepers under Pep Guardiola to over five hundred million euros in transfer fee commitments alone. Um, it's the ninth uh, defender uh, signed by uh, Manchester City in the Abu Dhabi era for a transfer fee commitment of £45 million or more. Pep, as I say, has had seven of those, um, plus his two international goalkeepers, Claudio Bravo, who he, of course, dumped after a single season, and Ederson, who was €40 billion Euros from uh, Benfica and close to a record transfer fee. For a goalkeeper at the time um, so not only an entire back four but three um, replacements uh, of those substantial fees over um, a, a minimum of 45 million euros it's quite extraordinary spend on defence interesting the way they got Ruben Gias because um, we reported on the podcast last year that he was a player that City were pursuing and they wanted and saw as a replacement um, for Vincent Company. Um, a lot of clubs have been after Ruben Gias, 23-year-old Portugal international captain of the Benfica side. Benfica had uh, consistently said, no, this is not a player we sell. Um, the release clause is 100 million euros. If you want to take him, you take him for 100 million euros. There is no negotiation on this. They then got hit by COVID. Um, and I think there's an argument that Benfica, of the top European clubs, have been damaged more than any other by COVID and that they were headed for the Portuguese title pre the COVID break. They came back from it, fell apart, ended up sacking their coach, um, Bruno Laghi, who'd done a very good job for them, had come in and pushed a lot of their young, talented academy players into the team um, successfully. You had the sale of, of Jean Felix for a record sum last summer as part of that. And Benfica kind of built a model around promoting academy players in or making good buys from overseas, uh, seeing them succeed in the Portuguese league, seeing them succeed in the Champions League and sell for a substantial sum. And, and Laggy was kind of a, the ideal coach for that. They fell apart, they sacked him, they spent a lot of money bringing their former coach, Jorge Jesus, back from Brazil, where he'd had an extremely successful period with Flamengo. Um, Jesus, notoriously demanding manager, 
um, then went about saying, well, I don't like this young player. I don't like that young player. I want them sold. Vinicius Jr., their um, striker that they've been trying to raise 65 million euros for. Uh, Florentino, a uh, holding midfielder who probably down the line they see is selling for 50, 60 million euros, dumped from the team. Um, a lot of money spent on replacements. They then missed Champions League qualification uh, because they had to go through the qualifying rounds. The qualifying rounds were one-legged ties instead of two-legged ties. So they go out to Pauk in the first of those. That puts another 50 million euro minimum hole in their budget. And they can't sell the players that they had placed on the market. So Manchester City cleverly and opportunistically come back in and say, well, are you still insisting on 100 million for Ruben Gias? Because we'll do that deal for around 60, 65 million. And Benfica sold and did this deal very quickly. They accepted they needed the cash. Um, it was presented in this way with with Otamendi going in the other direction that they could say to the fans, well, we get a substantial transfer fee for him. Um, Ruben Gias had agreed to go. The manager expressed a disappointment but allowed it to happen. And, uh, and City get their man. The question you have to ask is whether the coach is able to turn that man into a reliable defender because having over half a billion euros spent on your defence in just over four years. And remember, they've already spent over £40 million on Nathan Aki as a backup uh, to Imeric Laporte, um, suggests that Pep Guardiola has a real problem taking high-quality players and turning them into effective defenders in the Premier League and, more importantly, in the Champions League. Because despite all those players, despite that, you know, nobody has spent that much in a defence ever. He's still to take this team beyond the quarterfinals of the Champions League. I know some of our listeners will be surprised to hear this, but I have done some research on this subject and I've found out that um, there are some small African states who have spent less on their defence budget than Manchester City. Um, so perhaps Pep needs to just basically park a submarine or something across the goal. Uh, and it'll be a lot cheaper and probably more effective. Um, but on a more serious note, Duncan, um, there does seem to be a, a chink in the armour of the Guardiola uh, legacy stroke um, modus operandi here. Uh, he has bought several fullbacks in his time at Manchester City. Um, he's definitely deployed more than six centre-backs as well. The only one that I think we could all genuinely cite as being completely reliable was the one he inherited, which of course was the legendary captain, Volson Company. And it seems to me that uh, he, he doesn't seem able to... And I know that you've got your own theory on this with regards to how he demands his players play, but he doesn't seem to be able to uh, select transfer targets, recruit them, and then integrate them into his team and way of playing in a way which perhaps Klopp has done at Liverpool um, and, and, and therefore they suffer 
from these defensive frailties? Look, it's obviously hard to be a defender in a in a Pep Guardiola team because of the way he sets up. Right? He likes to play an extremely high line. He likes to press the opposition immediately to get the ball. You know, we've talked about tactical fouling in this podcast for I don't know more than two years, um, to a lot of indignation from Manchester City supporters in particular who say that every team ta- what was a tactical foul was the initial complaint and then it was every team tactical fouls and now it's you know it's openly accepted in football that it's it's a fundamental tactic of of Guardiola's um if you ha- demand that your defenders play so high up the field you make it more difficult for them you need quick defenders and you need uh, players who can be in the right positions at the right time who can recover when they're exposed and and he hasn't always had those because of injury issues um, because of a lack of trust in some of the players he has signed so John Stones signed for a massive fee and fallen out of favour with Guardiola partly because of his off-field behaviour but you know that's a player who should have worked for his system and and has been dumped out of the system that's one of the reasons Ruben Gias is is coming in now Um, he also, I think, and I think this is a very important issue here, I think he almost prioritizes the passing qualities of his defenders over the defensive element. So Emeric Laporte was brought in, again, a huge fee because of his ability to pass the ball both short and long distance and create play that way. And that's fine. And, and I would say that Laporte, His greatest strength for Manchester City has been exactly what Pep Guardiola identified in him. He's a far better creative defender than he is a defensive defender. And you see him making poor recovery tackles and and getting his team into problems from time to time. It's probably not as much as some of the others, but also susceptible in certain ways. And I think if you prioritise, if you play that way, and if you prioritise passing over some of the basics of, of defending, which ironically was not company's suite. He was first and foremost a defender who could pass the ball well and and was good enough in the other elements to fit into uh, Guardiola's scheme. But he had that fundamental quality that most coaches will look for in the defender. Um, And he's the one that worked best in the system. But I I think it's kind of self-destructive on Guardiola's part. And opponents know how they're set up, they know the way they're going to play and they they, they develop ways to exploit it. Um, and he's a, you know, he's a very demanding coach. So that on top of his ability to psychologically test his players when they don't adhere to what he wants them to do, I think has also um, contributed to these, you know, the high failure rate with defenders in his team and I think this season is is going to be a pivotal one because um, he's been Leicester City was obviously a case in point Duncan yeah absolutely but I think there's a there's a more fundamental issue here that he's been there a long time Um, if you talk to the people who worked with him in Barcelona they will tell you that by the end of his reign at Barcelona most of the players were Maybe happy is the wrong word, but they were not disappointed to see him leave because they were exhausted and he was exhausted 
of the coaching style and the demands he placed upon them. And um, I think there's a risk this season. If it continues down the path we saw against Leicester City um, and they get you know a couple more of those results you would not expect from Manchester City side, that he loses enough of the players that it becomes impossible to 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 beat Liverpool again. Obviously, we have to see if Liverpool can sustain what they've, they've started this season with through the season. But it, it's not as straightforward for Pep Guardiola as it probably was two years ago. So are you saying that Guardiola is culpable of creating a kind of almost schizophrenic state in his defenders in the sense that he would rather they were footballers, people who could facilitate passing, movement and uh, possession rather than actually defending against opponents, which does not help because, as we all know, and the fans can see straight through this as well, you want your defenders to first and foremost stop goals being scored, whereas Guardiola prioritises elsewhere. He prioritises elsewhere. He, he, his, his idea of football is to retain possession of the ball uh, and to, to move in the right positional fashion to outmanoeuvre your opponents and beat them. And, you know, it's great to watch. It, it, but it's certainly in the Premier League, it's great to watch. It leads leads to a lot of um, aesthetically beautiful goals. There are elements where it can, can turn into quite a predictable game, but at least we, we, we seem to have lost that with Manchester City because they're in this, as you describe it, schizophrenic state. Um, but yeah, he prioritises that ability in the attacking and the control of the ball field over what other coaches would prioritise from a defensive perspective. Um, it's not that he doesn't want his defenders to defend, but yeah, he expects them to be able to stop goals as well. So, so then when that doesn't happen, you have a point of conflict between the players and, um, and you have Guardiola going back to Chikibergiristan and Abu Dhabi and saying, no, I need more defenders. These ones you bought me, uh, that goalkeeper wasn't good enough. Sorry, can I have another international class goalkeeper at 40 million euros? Yeah, I wanted all those fullbacks, but actually, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure that I, any of them were the right fullbacks. So can I have some more fullbacks? And um, yeah, I need a new set of centre-backs too, please. And that's where you get, that's how you get to over half a billion uh, spent, as you say, bigger than some African countries' defence budget on transfer fee commitments alone. You know, we're, we're not even entering into the, the realm of including agents' fees and the salaries that are being paid to these individuals in the space of just over four years. It, it, you know, it's a phenomenal expenditure when you relate it to the return on what he was brought to the club to do, which is win the Champions League. So, um, just to round that one off, um, so it's a niche statement, I have to say, but some of you out there will appreciate it, and that is Pet Guardiola, catchphrase, and the cry was more defenders. <laughs> um, and we'll leave the discussion of Manchester City uh, there as it stands. 
It is the uh, first podcast of the week on the transfer window, which means we'll be rounding off with our hero and villain section of the last few days in the game. Uh, Duncan, I know who I'm going to nominate as my villain, but do you have a hero for us? Uh, I have have another villain, so you can you can do. It. Oh, two villains! <laughs> you promised me I could do the villain. <laughs> I think you misremembered that. I think David Ellery is going to be our villain this week. Um, oh, yeah, that's true. Very true. Uh, Go on, then. David Ellery, the, the man who is responsible, ultimately responsible for the handball law, um, which we have seen um, making a mockery of the start to this Premier League season. Um, I think there was a statistic came out over the weekend when uh, those three penalties were being awarded to Leicester City against um, Manchester City and, and actually, in this case, not handball penalties, ironically, uh, that you have three in this uh, season which has been full of handball penalties and they weren't handball in that case. But we're, we're now, at that point, we're on course for over 300 penalties in this Premier League season. Um, and the record in all previous Premier League seasons is 112. Um, we talked when these rules were first floated um, about the idiocy of um, the handball uh, tightening of definition that, that David Ellery and IFAB were trying to bring in and that it would cause fundamental problems with the game. They had one season of it where it worked very badly. They tried to improve it and they've actually made things worse. Um, I, and I think look, when you've got a manager of Newcastle United, Steve Bruce, who gets a point in the final minutes of the game because of a handball and deliberately, intentionally, and to his great credit, goes through every one of his media interviews and attacks the change of rules, talks about how ludicrous the change of handball rule is. Um, you can see that the people who are actually on the pitch, the people who have to coach the guys on the pitch, um, and, and I think... Actually, if you had the opportunity to speak to the referees, you'd find that the referees are infuriated with the changes that David Ellery has made. And let's go back to why he did it. It was because the English game decided unilaterally that they weren't going to apply the old handball law because there was a, a goal scored with a hand in a Premier League game that they were embarrassed about. They decided secretly to instruct referees not to allow uh, goals to be scored by the hand. That led... Um, when it was exposed to the rewriting of the rule. Um, now we've had a second attempt at the rewriting of the rule and they, none of these people in, who are entrusted with uh, adjusting the laws of the game have had the foresight to see that the adjustments they try to make are actually going to make the game significantly worse, which says to me that they should be removed from their positions um, uh, where they have control over the laws of the game. Um, football is better when the rules are simple. And there's a reason why football has been so popular for so long with very marginal evolution of the rules rather than these radical big changes that David Ellery and co have tried to introduce in recent years. And Duncan, it is our understanding of the Transfer Window podcast that the referees, elite referees from PGMOL, in the Premier League have 
and will make a representation to uh, their bosses with regards to the fact that they feel they are becoming the victims of FIFA's new regulations regarding handball. They are being told to go to the video monitor, which we saw over last weekend's games, um, to review handball decisions, which the VAR, and by that I mean the video decision referee sitting in Stockley Park, has already made the decision and has been told, and the referee on the pitch has been told, that they have to give a penalty. And therefore, they're the ones who have been made to look silly, even though VAR and the rules themselves are the ones who are an ass. And that presumably is because the Premier League is trying to sell the decision, as they, as they describe it, by showing that the referee has gone to the monitor and made it. Um, so, so that is actually... Um, something putting the referees in a difficult position because of a rule change in order to defend VAR because of the criticism the Premier League suffered over VAR last season. Not really surprising, given um, the fact that uh, VAR and PGMOL have made um, a bit of a mess, to say the least, in the last year of the way the game is governed. Um, However, uh, we all have to live with that and live with the outcomes as well. Um, Duncan's thrown me a googly there by um, telling me his villain because I was going to have a villain of my own at the Amex Stadium uh, with regards to the non-award of a penalty uh, when Paul Pogba clearly took down Aaron Connolly uh, in a game which probably should not have ended in the Manchester United win. I'm sure all you Man United fans will contradict me at that. However, a hero is easy to find when you've got someone in the game like Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, who this weekend surpassed any other player in terms of his goal record in Europe's top five leagues. 450 goals he has now scored in uh, the top five leagues of uh, the world, basically. And um, we have to pay tribute to him. We've done it before and we'll do it again because he's someone who we have massive respect for on the Transfer Window podcast. And yet again, he has not let us down with his achievements. So, Cristiano, you're our hero. We hope you've enjoyed today's Transfer Window podcast. Please, if you want to continue the debate, you can do so on our social media channels at Transfer Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. We are available on all podcast platforms as well as our own YouTube channel. So uh, we're very used to find it's at Transfer Window Podcast on YouTube. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, and I'm sure you have, and most of you generally do, given the feedback we get, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes and the community expands and we all get to get together and talk about the things that we discuss on the podcast. If you want to contact us personally, and as you well know, Duncan and I are up for a conversation whenever you are, then Duncan is at Duncan Castles 
on Twitter, and I am at Garbo S. Jay, we will be back later this week with another uh, installment of the Transfer Window podcast with days, of course, getting smaller and smaller before the window closes. So keep in touch with us and we will keep in touch with you and give you all of the latest news as we always do. Until then, it leads me to say stay safe, be well and thanks for listening. (laughs) 